Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, They Have No Wine. It's based upon the lectionary readings for January 20th, 2019. I doubt it's the line I'm supposed to fixate on in this week's gospel reading, but I can't help it. I can't help wondering exactly how Mary says it, quietly, urgently, after pulling her distracted son away from his friends, away from the music and the dancing, away from the servants working hard to hide their growing panic as countless wedding guests swirl obliviously around them. I imagine Mary takes Jesus into an inner room, fixes his attention with a stern stare, and whispers the shameful news into his ear. They have no wine. The wedding in Cana story is not, finally, a story about scarcity. It's a story about abundance. Lavish, excessive, extravagant abundance. As an epiphany story, Jesus' transformation of water into wine clearly reveals God's generous nature. For John, the Gospel writer, the miracle constitutes the first of seven signs or proofs of Jesus' deity and signals the onset of the incarnate Word's public ministry. Needless to say, there is so much theological richness to mine in this story. The eschatological significance of a wedding as a backdrop for Jesus, our bridegroom's first miracle. The importance of joy, celebration, pleasure, and hospitality Jesus affirms in conjuring 150 gallons of first-rate wine just to keep a party going. God's endless capacity to transform the ordinary into the sacred, the weaker into the stronger, the incomplete into the whole. The foreshadowing of the Eucharist and the sharing of the wine. All of this richness strengthens my faith, and all of it is worth exploring. But what strikes me here and now, as I struggle to reconcile a Bible story about abundance with my contemporary reality, both personal and global, of scorching scarcity, is the pivotal role Mary plays in the story. Her line, they have no wine, is a line I can get behind. They have no money. She has no cure. He has no friends. I have no strength. Mary's line is a line I repeat daily in endless iterations for myself and for others. It's a line I cling to when I feel helpless, when I have nothing concrete to offer, when Christianity seems futile, when God feels like he's a million miles away. It's a line that insists against all odds on the mysterious power of telling God the truth in prayer. So I've been pondering Mary's role in Jesus' first miracle. It's an odd and provocative role, but I'm grateful for it because it allows me a place in what otherwise feels like an inaccessible narrative. I have no idea how to turn gallons of water into gallons of wine. But I do know how to say what Jesus' mother says. Sometimes it's the only thing I know how to say. There is need here. Everything is not okay. We're in trouble. They have no wine. Here are some aspects of Mary's role I've been thinking about and finding helpful. 1. Mary notices. In the ancient world, wedding feasts lasted for days, and it was the host's sacred responsibility to provide abundant food and drink for the duration of the festivities. To run out of wine early was a dishonor and a disgrace, a breach of hospitality that the guests would remember for years. I can easily imagine how the servants of the house must have gone limp with fear. This was the kind of miscalculation that could cost them their jobs, or worse. We have no idea what Mary's connection is to the bride and groom. All we know is that she is one wedding guest among many. But even in the midst of celebration and distraction, she notices need. She sees what's amiss. 
She perceives the high likelihood of scandal and humiliation brewing beneath a seemingly glossy surface. If John's account is trustworthy, Mary notices and registers concern before Jesus does. 2. Mary tells the right person. John's Gospel doesn't include any infancy narratives, no angelic annunciations, no babe in the manger, no prophetic words or pretentious stars. But the Mary John describes still knows who her son is. She knows what he's capable of, and she trusts that he alone can meet the need she perceives. I love the assurance with which she brings her distress to Jesus. Given her 30-year history with him, given the relationship they've cultivated together, she is as certain of his ability and his generosity as she is of the need itself. 3. Mary persists. This, for me, is the oddest and yet most encouraging part of the story. I don't know what to make of Jesus' reluctance to help when Mary first approaches him. What concern is that to you and me, he asks her dismissively when he hears about the dwindling wine supply. My hour has not yet come. Of course, Jesus is no fool. He knows that his countdown to crucifixion will begin as soon as he makes his true identity known. Maybe he's reluctant to start that ominous clock ticking. Maybe he thinks winemaking shouldn't be his first miracle. Maybe he's having fun with his friends and doesn't want to be interrupted. Maybe there's a mysterious timeline he prefers to follow, a timeline known only to him and to God. Whatever the case, Mary doesn't cave in the face of his reluctance. She continues to press the urgency of her need into Jesus' presence, as if to say, I don't care about your hour. There's a desperate problem right here, right now. Change your plans. Hasten the hour. Empathy first. Help. 4. Mary instills trust and invites obedience. Do whatever he tells you, she advises the household servants. I admire the fact that she doesn't wait to hear the specifics of Jesus' plan. She doesn't pretend to know the details. She doesn't invent a road map. She simply communicates her long-standing trust in Jesus' loving, generous character and invites the servants to practice the minute-by-minute obedience that alone makes faith possible. If I'm reading the story correctly, the servant's task isn't easy. There's no running water in the ancient world, and those stone jars are huge. How many trips to the well, how much arm strength, how deep a resolve the task requires— I imagine it's Mary's faith that helps the servants persevere when they feel bewildered and ridiculous. She acts as a catalyst, turning potential into action. She lays the groundwork for Jesus' instructions, fill the jars, draw some out, take it to the chief steward. She fosters a faithful atmosphere that becomes contagious. She instills wonder in those around her and ushers in a miracle. Maybe I'm so drawn to Mary this week because it's a hard business, holding the promise of God's abundance up against the agony of scarcity, loss, and need. Don't get me wrong, I love the miracle itself and all that it signifies. But I'm more acquainted with water than I am with wine. Many of us are, if we're honest. It doesn't matter what the particulars look like. Chronic illness, physical pain, financial trouble, systemic injustice. Regardless of how we rewrite Mary's line to match our circumstances, it rings true for all of us, in some guise or another. They have no wine. So what do we do? What can our place be in a miracle of plenty? Maybe we can be like Mary. Maybe we can notice, name, persist, and trust. No matter how profound the scarcity, no matter how impossible the situation, we can elbow our way in, pull Jesus aside, ask earnestly for help, and ready ourselves for action. We can tell God hard truths even when we're supposed to be celebrating. We can keep human needs squarely before our eyes, even and especially when denial, apathy, or distraction are easier options. 
And finally, we can invite others to obey the miraculous winemaker we have come to know and trust. They have no wine. Do whatever he tells you. We live in the tension between these two lines. Let's live there well, confident of the one whose help we seek. Because he is good. He is generous. He is love. For books this week, Dan reviews Bad Blood by John Carreyrou. The summer after her freshman year in college at Stanford, Elizabeth Holmes banged out a 26-page business plan to radically revolutionize diagnostic blood testing. In 2003, at the age of 19, she dropped out of Stanford and founded a company called Theranos. She assembled an all-star cast of investors like Rupert Murdoch, Walgreens, and Safeway, and a board of directors that included George Schultz, Henry Kissinger, and former senators Sam Nunn and Bill Frist. By 2014, Theranos employed 800 people. It occupied a sprawling and brand-new campus in Palo Alto and was valued at a staggering $10 billion. Holmes was worth $4.5 billion. A cover story by Forbes magazine in the fall of 2014 vaulted her to instant stardom. Her security team expanded to 20 people, and henceforth she flew on a private Gulfstream jet. Thanks to John Carreyrou, a chance tip from a pathologist in Missouri, and especially to some very brave Theranos whistleblowers who faced intimidating legal threats, we now know that Theranos was a complete sham. Carreyrou, who has won two Pulitzer Prizes as an investigative reporter for the Wall Street Journal, published a devastating and meticulously documented article on October 15, 2015, that revealed the true nature of this Potemkin village, along with dozens of follow-up articles. His book, based upon interviews with more than 150 people, including more than 60 former employees of Theranos, covers the entire 15-year history of this sordid story. In September 2018, Theranos dissolved as a company and no longer exists. There has been a tsunami of lawsuits. Holmes's net worth is zero. Nearly a million test results had to be voided. Charged with a massive fraud, she settled with the SEC in 2018. She still faces criminal charges of fraud from a federal grand jury indictment in June of 2018. In the last pages of this book, Kairou wonders aloud how all this could have happened, and to what extent Holmes might be not just a brazen liar and megalomaniac, but a certified sociopath. The word on the street is that she feels unjustly persecuted, and that she's now pitching investors with her latest ideas about a new company. For movies this week, Dan reviews Sour Grapes. This 90-minute documentary on Netflix features the rise and fall of Rudy Kuryawan. Friends remember Rudy as a skinny wine geek who had an extraordinary knowledge of wine, an insane palate that could identify arcane vintages, a generous personality, and a mysterious background. Where did he get the money to collect and then sell a wine inventory worth a record-breaking $35 million? Somewhere in this world of elite collectors, anomalies started to appear with Rudy's wines. Labels, corks, wax seals, non-existent production years, misspellings, errors in auction catalogs, and even Elmer's glue that was not invented until 1970, but was used for wine labels ostensibly older than that. In 2012, the FBI raided Rudy's home and discovered that he was mixing his own blends from his kitchen sink and selling them as rare collector's items. The billionaire Bill Cox for example, had at least 800 bottles of Ruby's fake wine, for which he had paid $4 million. In 2014, Rudy was convicted of fraud. He's now serving a 10-year sentence with the largest case of wine counterfeiting in history. He was also ordered to repay his victims $28 million. The movie interviews numerous people, collectors who were duped, 
private investigators, FBI agents, a federal prosecutor, defense attorneys, wine writers and consultants, a sommelier, and friends who still defend their beloved Rudy. There might be as many as 10,000 bottles of Rudy's blend still in private collections. And finally, for poems this week, I Thank You, God, by E.E. E. Cummings. I thank you, God, for most this amazing day, for the leaping, greenly spirits of trees and the blue, true dream of sky, and for everything which is natural, which is infinite, which is yes. I, who have died, am alive again today, and this is the sun's birthday. This is the birthday of life and love and wings and of the gay, great happening, illimitably earth. How should tasting, touching, hearing, seeing, breathing, any, lifted from the know of all nothing, human, merely being, doubt, unimaginably you? Now the ears of my ears awake, and now the eyes of my eyes are opened. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for January 20th, 2019. I'm Debbie Thomas.